is where we're at, and we're getting really close to the end here. Uh, anybody want to take a guess at who wrote this book? All right. John, of course, wrote it. Um, it is at least uh, the, the third one that we know of that he has written, and uh, it's very, very short. Uh, it's only one chapter long, so you can go ahead and guess what the key chapter is. <coughs> Excuse me, it's only 13 verses. And uh, in 1 John, the first uh, epistle that he wrote, uh, he wrote it with the theme or the, 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 the main thrust of the message, um, the dealing with the fellowship uh, that a Christian has uh, with God and the idea of loving one another, loving God the way that we should, and that these were the basis of um, and the motivations behind being steadfast in doctrine. There was a lot of false teachers that were still propping their heads up during this time. The second epistle that he writes here is not so much focusing on the believer's fellowship with God as much as it is dealing with the, the uh, exhortation not to fellowship, uh, believers not to fellowship with those uh, that were uh, false teachers. And so kind of the, the opposite thrust, but the antithesis of the same thing that he talked about uh, in his first letter. And uh, he begins the letter in verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all they that have known the truth. And so the idea here, and I mentioned this, I think in the first one we did a couple weeks ago uh, from his first epistle, uh, was that the elder is not necessarily referring here to the fact of a position as far as like being a pastor or an elder of a church, but more so the fact of his actual age. Uh, at this point, he's up in years, and we know some of this because of who he's writing to. The Bible says that he's writing unto the elect lady. He doesn't address anyone in particular. Or he addresses somebody very specific, but he doesn't name them by name. Let's put it that way. Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that, and I'll share that with you here in just a moment. But also it says, and her children. So not only are these people that John knows, but he's also addressing her children. So again, John is getting up in years. He's the oldest of the apostles. Um, he's the only one that dies of natural causes. This letter is written somewhere around 90 A.D., uh, maybe 89, 90, 91, somewhere in that range. And <clears throat> I think it's Revelation that he writes in 92 A.D., just before he dies. And uh, so this is a very short, very quick letter. And uh, he's writing it with an emphasis on the truth or sound doctrine. He doesn't use the phrase sound doctrine, but he refers to it as the truth. In fact, in the first three verses, he uses the phrase the truth four different times. And you can see us, I mean, right off the bat, he is very strongly encouraging them to focus on the truth. Let's read those first three verses very quickly. He says, The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love, here's the first one, in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known, here it is again, the truth. For the truth's sake, there it is again, which dwelleth in us, and shall be with us forever. Grace be with you, mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth, there it is again, and love. <coughs> so we kind of get the idea. John is really, really kind of driving home uh, this idea of uh, the truth being their foundation. He greets them in the truth. He rejoices in them in the truth. He's rejoicing that they're holding to the truth and that they're walking in the truth. 
<coughs> Excuse me. So uh, these are these are major major issues uh, that are affecting that church at that time. That there are false teachers that are denying, and he he specifically names them in this one as those that deny that the Lord Jesus Christ had come to this earth in bodily form. Uh, there are a lot of people today that deny the Lord Jesus Christ or the Bible. There are a lot of religious people, aren't there? And they'll talk about Jesus, but they're not talking about the same Jesus that our Bible describes and talks about. And this is what John is combating. And uh, so it's very similar in that aspect to his first epistle in that he's fighting false doctrine. But he puts the emphasis more so not on um, our fellowship with God, because he's already dealt with that, but now so not to fellowship uh, with those uh, that would be false teachers. Um, the two, there are two parts of the book. Uh, again, he teaches the, the readers to walk in love, and this is one of the telltale signs that John speaks of that helps us have a testimony that we are the children of God, that we love one another. But there are two parts of the book, and even though it's only 13 verses, verses 1 through 6 deals with abiding in God's commandment, uh, being steadfast in it, being strong in it. And then the verses 7 through 13, and of course he's got the salutation in there, uh, but the uh, last half of the book is dealing with not abiding with false teachers. In other words, separating ourselves from it. So the first half is dealing with abiding in the commands of God and being obedient to those. And then the second half of it is dealing with not abiding with false teachers. In the first half of the book, he gives the salutation. We already mentioned here that uh, he rejoices and he loves those, and here's the phrase that he uses, all those that have known the truth. Look at verse number 4. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received a commandment from the Father. Now, there's an awful lot in this verse. Uh, I think there are, are tremendous points to bring out. First of all, uh, it ought to be the joy of our hearts when brothers and sisters in Christ are living faithfully. I think it ought to be the joy of our hearts when God gives us victory and we're living faithfully in the Christian life. But when we see others uh, doing what's right, holding to the things that are right and true, uh, notice he doesn't just say, I rejoice, but he says, I rejoice greatly. I mean, this is, this is the love of John's heart. Uh, John is rejoicing in, 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 a, in, a, in this way. He's, he uses the word greatly here. He rejoices more than just you know, being glad about it. But there's a great joy that bubbles over him, almost to the point of overflowing. You would get this mindset of how great this joy is and the rejoicing that he has. And I want you to notice what it is that he's rejoicing about. And I think this is tremendous. He says, that I found of you, is that what it says? That I have found of what? Thy children. Isn't that interesting? That I have found of thy children walking in truth. Now, again, some people say, well, the elect lady is the church and the children would be those that they've trusted, they have trusted Christ as their Savior. And that's fine because this principle still holds true whether it's dealing with uh, families and their, their immediate children biologically or whether they're dealing with uh, the elect lady being the local church and the children being those that have been brought to Christ through them. Either way, this principle holds true, and that is this, that he's rejoicing greatly because they are passing on their faith to the next generation. Isn't that an amazing thought? We live in a day where a lot of times we feel like coming to church and reading our Bibles and having 
uh, our personal walk with the Lord, is all about our personal growth, and, and it ought to be. There ought to be things we enrich ourselves. We ought to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've taught a lot about that. We ought to know our Bibles. We ought to be sound in doctrine. But if all we ever do is take in, take in, take in, and we never share that with anyone, then we're only fulfilling half of what God has for us in the Christian life. And so it's very vitally important that we understand He's rejoicing not just that they're, they're holding fast in the truth, but they, that they have passed that on, that sound doctrine, that truth that they had learned. They had passed that on to their children. And John hears that their children are walking in truth. And it brings great, great joy to his heart in that. There is no greater joy in the world than to see God do a transforming work in a life from a gospel message or the Bible message that we have shared with them that God has used us as an instrument in His hand to bring about the transforming word of his, work of His truth in that heart. Oh, what a joy it is. And John sees this, the fruit of his labors uh, happening. And as we get older in life, uh, we get to uh, see more and more of God's work in lives. You know, the measure of, of successful ministry, the, the measure of a successful church is not in its finances. It's not in its attendances. It is in the growth of the people, the spiritual growth, the maturing of the people that attend that church. That's the measurement of success in a church. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Bible says, he, in verse number 11, 12, he says, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Well, how do you measure that? How do you measure maturity? When our kids are little, uh, you might have a, a mark on a door jam as they grow physically. But it's difficult, is it not, to measure the maturity level of your children? In fact, it takes time. A lot of times you don't know if they have matured the way they should have until they have already gotten up in years. And the reason churches oftentimes equate success with other measures is because measuring spiritual maturity takes decades sometimes. To see the people that have been turned out from that ministry, they're still serving the Lord faithfully. They have grown in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet that is the purpose. That's what we ought to be about. It ought to be the thing that we strive for. And that's why oftentimes we don't see until we get older the fruit of the work that we've done. There's times that you labor for the Lord, uh, weeks, months, sometimes years, sometimes decades, before you finally see something that God did in the life of someone else through you as an instrument in His hand. And all oh, the joy that it brings. The joy that it brings. So He's rejoicing they hear that their children walk in truth. And then He says this, uh, as we have received a commandment from the Father. So these children... Uh, of, of the elect lady here are, are walking in the truth. And the Bible says not just any truth, but as they have received commandment of the Lord. They're following the, the truth of God's Word. And I would say it this way. They have become obedient and submissive to God's Word. And that ought to be the joy and the, the desire of every Christian. It ought to be the love of our hearts to be able to conform and to be transformed by this Word and to live in obedience to it. So he commends them uh, for uh, walking, not just, re not just knowing the truth. Uh, notice he says in verse, um, uh, uh, oh, let's see here. Yeah, verse number 1, excuse me. 
In verse number 1, he's saluting them that have known the truth. But in verse number 4, there's a difference. He says, I rejoice greatly that I have found thy children walking in truth. And there is a distinction made here. And there is a difference. It's vitally important you understand this, and we understand this as Christians, that there is a distinct difference between knowing the truth and walking in the truth. And it is important that we walk in the truth. And uh, so uh, he reminds them of the commandment uh, that God has given to them. He's going to speak of this a little bit further down uh, in in, uh, verse number 5. Specifically, uh, the main emphasis of the commandment that he wants them to, to follow after, as far as the commandment of God that was given to them, is that they love one another. Notice verse 5. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning. So again, the, the truth that he's speaking of here is not something new. He's not, this is not new revelation to them. He's rejoicing because the revelation that he had told them earlier that they should love one another, they're walking in it. They're abiding it. They're being obedient to Christ. In verse 5, we find a divine command from God. Because the Bible says, I wrote a new com- uh, 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 not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. There's a divine commandment that God has given, and then there is a human response to it. God does not make us robots. We are not predetermined creatures. We are free will humans. And we have a choice. When God tells us to do something in Scripture, we have a choice to obey it or not to obey it. It's the same choice we had when we were kids and mom and dad told us to do something. We had a choice. We could either obey it or not obey it. Now, you have, you have the right to your own choices. But be understand, understand this for sure, that you don't have the right to choose the consequences. Your choices will affect your consequences. And the Bible is very clear about that. Uh, we have a divine command given by God that we love one another. And the human response is we're to walk, not just know, but walk in that truth. We're to walk in that truth. And he goes on to explain what this is. He says, and this is love, that we walk after His, what? Commandments, as ye have heard from the beginning, ye should walk in it. And uh, so again, making sure that we walk in these commandments, and uh, that should be the human response to it. We should do that because our love for Him is right. We saw that last week in 1 John, that uh, one of the telltale signs of knowing that we know Him is that we, we do His commandments. We're obedient to Him. And we do it out of love. In fact, he goes on to tell us in the first epistle that if we say that we love God and love not our brother, we lie and the truth is not in us. And so that tells us that if our love for the Lord is what it should be, then our love for one another will be what it should be. And you can rest assured any time that our love one for another is not what it should be. It is impossible for our love for the Lord to be what it should be. cannot be. And very, very important that we understand this truth. All right. Uh, second part of the letter is verse 7 and following. Here, this is where he kind of switches gears and he, uh, after uh, teaching them that they need to abide in God's commandments because that is a display, it is a testimony to, it is the way that they show their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, their abiding in Him uh, is by the obedience of His commandments. Then he kind of switches gears. 
And he says, now, you should abide in God's commandments, but here's something you should not abide in, and that is uh, you should not abide with false teachers. Let's look real quick at verse number 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Uh, I was watching a, uh, uh, a, uh, a fellow that was doing an open-air meeting uh, trying to, on a college campus trying to share the gospel with some young people, and he allowed them to ask him questions, and he would give the responses to it. And uh, I wouldn't say that I agreed with everything that he used as a response, but he was pretty straight on most all of what he said and was doing a good work there. But I was amazed at how many young people in their early to mid-20s, maybe late-20s even, that denied that the Lord Jesus Christ even lived on the earth at all, that he was a uh, fictitious figure, and that this was a conglomeration of people over the decades that took the best characteristics of mankind and rolled them into a legend uh, that was not true and used a fictitious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They denied the fact that he had even come on the scene. And, uh, of course, this fellow cites a lot of historical facts and how that there are literally historical records of Christ, and even many of his miracles were seen by eyewitnesses, and uh, he shared a lot of that. But, you know, every one of those young people, and they're young, and, they're, of course, they're, uh, this is my personal belief, that they are being indoctrinated to not believe in God in our education system here in the United States. They're being taught this. And they come out of these institutions of higher learning. They may have some academic knowledge, but they are foolish. Because the Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. And they come out denying God. They come out denying that there even was a Lord Jesus Christ that walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And one of the things the fellow said was, what's today's date? And the kid told him, he said, you realize that our date, our calendar, comes from the event of this man's birth. And these kids didn't even realize that, didn't understand that, didn't know that. But I thought of that as I was reading through this letter this week, and I thought, you know, those, those young people, whether they want to admit it or not, whether they believe it or not, whether they understand it or not, are false teachers. They're deceivers. In fact, John calls them here in verse number 7, they're Antichrist. Now, they're not the Antichrist that's going to come on the scene, but they have the spirit of Antichrist in them. They deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are easy to see because they're very vocal about it. They're very verbal about it. And I've said this before in dealing with false teachers. The, the ones that are easy to see are easy to see. But the ones that are hard to see are hard to see. Because there are, there are men that will stand in, in churches this morning that will still deny at least the Lord Jesus that is spoken of in this book. They will still talk about a Christ that's not spoken of in Scripture. And even those will be deceiving. They'll take a lot of people with them. They'll think, these folks will think, that well, that's a very good religion, but it is not, not doctrinally sound. And so John speaks of this. He says, For many deceivers are entered into the world. And we need to understand this too. Over and over, the Bible uses this phrase, this word many. And I'll tell you, it's tempting, is it not, for us to think, well, yeah, there's probably some of that out there, Pastor, but not a lot. No, no. The Bible says there's going to be many. In fact, there were many in John's day, and yet the world has waxed worse and worse. 
There are many today, there are many that are going to be very religious-minded that think they're on their way to heaven. And when they get before God one day, He's going to say, Depart from me, I never knew you. And it's not going to be a few. It's going to be many, the Bible says. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. But narrow is the gate, and straight is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Very important, folks, that we understand the, the, the situation we are in today. Uh, somehow we have gotten lulled into complacency and apathy to, to think that the, the vast majority of Christians believe in God and are probably on their way to heaven. And there's just this, this minority group out here that denies God and is anti-God and anti-Christ. And, and it's even more susceptible for us that fellowship within a group of people who do believe the way we believe. Because we think the whole world's like this. We, we kind of put ourselves in a protective bubble. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being in a protective bubble, but we do need to walk circumspectly. We do need to see that the world is wicked. We do need to see that there's far more people on their way to hell today than there are on their way to heaven. And we need to be reminded of that constantly. We need to be reminded of that so it will motivate us and give us a heart and a burden for the lost. So he's, he's warning them about these deceivers, and then he gives them the exhortation in verse number 8. He says this, Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that you receive a full reward. A full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the, and the Son. If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine... I want you to notice this, because this is something that's very... Uh, we don't hold to this very much in the day we live. If there be come any unto you, unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Now again, we spoke the other night on two different types of false teachers. And I want you to understand John does differentiate here. He does make sure that we understand that these are ones that are deceivers. Their intent is to deceive. And these are the ones he's marking. There are those that are the uh, the ones that follow ignorantly that teaching. And as such, they are sincerely thinking they're right, as I was this morning when I took the wrong medication. They, they sincerely thought they were right. But it was not done in a deceitful manner or in a destructive manner, and they really think they are doing God a favor. They're doing what God has told them to do. Understand this, that we treat them differently. We've spoken about this. We've talked talk the other Wednesday night and taught from this, from God's Word, how we are to treat them. The ones that are doing so ignorantly, we are still to love them and encourage them and try to show them the truth. And we are to speak the truth, the Bible says, in love to them. Um, we're not to be mean. We're not to be hateful. We are to speak the truth to them. We are to bring correction to them. And this is where we live today because we have been so shamed by the world, which why in the world would we ever be ashamed by the world? But the world has tried to shame Christians 
into saying, you need to keep quiet about that because you're going to be offensive to that person. Well, wait a minute. The only way I can show that person I care about them is if I share the truth with them. I cannot just refrain from telling them the truth at the risk of being offensive to them. Now, we don't have to be offensive in doing it, but we must tell the truth. We must show them the difference between right doctrine and wrong doctrine. We must teach it. There, there are things that have been hard for me as a pastor to get in this pulpit and preach because I know that there are people that will disagree with it. But folks, the best way I can show you that I love you is to say, let's look at Scripture and see what this doctrine is. If I kept my mouth shut on it and didn't say anything about it, that's no concern for you at all. That's just me trying to save face and not be embarrassed by offending somebody. And I think everybody here knows my heart. I would never intentionally try to offend anybody. That is never my intent. In fact, it breaks my heart sometimes when someone is offended. But the truth is the truth. And we must teach it. We can do it in love. We can do it with the right spirit. And I'll tell you this, even if we disagree, we can still have courtesy to one another. It's interesting that John speaks of this because he's talking about here those that are deceitful. He says that in verse number 7. He says, for many deceivers are entered into the world. And so their intent is to do this. He says, out of these folks, these, these false teachers, if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. Now, I would say this, even about the ignorant ones, the ones that don't know any better. I would still be careful bidding them Godspeed. Because, again, you're trying to say, I'm, I'm praying God will go with you. As you share false doctrine, that's not right. We're, we're partakers of that. We're to teach them in love the truth. And I think that that certainly is within keeping of Scripture. But we don't join arm in arm with them and assist them in their false teaching. In fact, he tells us in verse number 11, For he that biddeth him God's feet is partaker of his evil deeds. We're to deny, and this is a harsh statement to make, and a lot of people may or may not like this, and they may say, well, that's awful... That's awful abrupt, and that's awful incendiary. But it is what the Bible teaches. And that is this, that we're to deny even the slightest assistance or encouragement or edifying to teachers that promote an erroneous view of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I do so, then I'm a partaker of that same false doctrine. As much as I, I may not think I am, as much as I may say, well, I hold the true doctrine... If I'm an encouragement to them, if I give them encouragement, that is not right. I was out uh, to dinner with a, a missionary friend of mine uh, from BIMI. He's one of the directors out at BIMI in, uh, in Chattanooga. And, uh, he, had, he had gone out with a friend of his that had been working on a, a Bible for the Muslim people. They did not have one in their language uh, of, any, of any good uh, translation from the King James Scriptures. And so this man had worked with some, some really smart fellows that knew the linguistics and everything for years. They had labored on, on making a Bible for the Muslims. When they got it all done, this missionary friend of mine went to, went to dinner with him. And uh, I had dinner with my missionary friend just literally probably two months or so after this had happened. 
But this man, after years, and I mean years, of a group of brilliant minds coming together and making a Bible translation for the Muslim people, uh, the Arabic people over there mostly, he, he got to the table with my missionary friend and he said, uh, and he was all smiles and he thought, boy, he had really done a great thing here. He said, you know what we ended up doing is every time it used the word God in Scripture, we used the word Allah because that's the Muslim word for God. My missionary friend looked at him, and, and it would have been easy for him to say, oh, okay, well, that's, that's interesting, you know, that's, and just gone on his way. But he didn't. This man who had poured years of his life into this translation work, he confronted him on it. He said, brother, you've made a huge mistake. Allah is not God. And the Allah that the Muslims understand and know by that name is not the God of the Bible. And he had to, he had to make a hard choice. He had, to, he had to confront a dear friend of his that was sincere, and this fellow really felt like he had done something that would help the, the Muslim people understand who God was by using this. But it wasn't the God of the Bible. My friend, no matter how close of a friend he was to this guy, no matter how much he loved this person... He had to tell him the truth. They'd already sent it off to the printers. I mean, they'd had, they spent thousands and probably tens of probably hundreds of thousands of dollars at this point getting this Bible made, only to realize that it wasn't right. And, folks, we have got to, we have got to get to the place where we learn to speak the truth in love. We've got to speak up. Our world is in the mess it's in because for far too long... We sat back as Christians enjoying 150 or so years of religious liberty and thinking we're a Christian nation. We don't have to speak up as much as we used to because we're in a Christian nation. No, no. We, if anything, we need to speak up more vocal than a pagan nation because our, we've, been, we've been lulled into apathy and complacency and mediocrity. Uh, we've got to get back to speaking the truth. There's got to be some voices that are raising up. I I follow the news a little bit, and I watch things. And, you know, we've we've had a huge pendulum swing of uh, deviant behavior and and wicked behavior in our society being normalized by a vocal minority. I think a vocal minority in our country, although if we don't turn something around, it will soon be a majority. And we watched and we stood silent and many stood silent while a lot of that was going on and people were too afraid to stand against it and everybody had to, had to come out in approval and support for it. And I'm thankful here in the last few days, it's not near enough, but in the last few months here, we've seen a slight swing of that back the other direction. Sad to say, not everybody that's been pushing back are Christians. And I think the Christians ought to be at the forefront of that charge. The Christians ought to be the ones that say we have the truth. We have the moral standard of God's Word to stand on. And we need to speak the word, the truth in love. We're not, to, we're not to associate. We're not to abide with these false teachers. We're not to wish them God's speed. We're not to join in fellowship with them. We're to speak the truth in love to those that are ignorant. And those that are deceivers, we've found that we're... After the first and second admonition, we're to turn them away. We're to have nothing to do with them. 
were to turn them out. And uh, it's certainly important that we understand this. Then he, he kind of closes it here in verse number 12. He says, Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I would trust, I trust to come to you, unto you and speak face to face, that our joy might, or may be full. And so he kind of gives a, a, an excuse for the brevity of the letter. Uh, he doesn't write anything more than just this one issue, basically, of uh, false teachers. Um, he hits it from two sides, but it's just basically one issue in this thing. And um, the reason he does that is because he does fully expect to, to see these folks face to face pretty soon. And he says, The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. So this is more than likely a sister church or someone that is close fellowship. More than likely, this is to a particular church. Some people believe that Ephesus, because he had a strong tie there at the time. And then also to some of the other churches there in Asia that had been started that he was writing to. John, of course, was the author. He writes at about 90 A.D. I think I already mentioned that one. Obviously, he knew who he was writing to, and they knew him intimately. Because he does not use his name, neither does he use their name. And I, I don't know this for sure. I'm going to give you my opinion on this. Okay, and I don't normally do this when I do this from the pulpit. I try to make sure. I always tell you this is my opinion, because we have no scripture for this. But I do know that by this time, strong, strong persecution has started coming. Christians being killed literally, literally daily for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them in hiding. Many of the churches uh, struggling to even find places to meet uh, where they're not uh, harassed and taken uh, captive. And it could be, it could be that John chooses to address himself and the folks he's writing to in this manner so that if the letter was intercepted, it could not be used to get uh, get some of the Christians that he was writing to. And so um, I don't know that for certain. There are some historical uh, leanings to that kind of a thought or process, um, but uh, certainly is, is within the realm of consideration. And, of course, all of it being done through uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So John wrote what the Holy Spirit told him to write. And... Um, and that, that could have been one of the reasons, but uh, at the end of the day, John wrote what the Holy Spirit gave him to write. Um, the key to it is avoiding fellowship with false teachers. The key verses are verses 9 and 10, which I've already, we've already read, so I won't go back over those. Anybody want to take a stab at what the key chapter is? All right. Chapter 1, obviously. There is only one. Okay, so we're done a little bit early, but that was a short book today, and I hope that was a help to you. Uh, Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed and uh, be ready for our next service here shortly. Father, we pray that you'll bless the time that we've spent around studying the the second epistle of John. May we learn the principles that you uh, so vitally want us to know.